0: Generally, what we hear in healthcare delivery is, I treat all of my patients the same. That's equality. But patients come to the healthcare delivery system with varying needs. And so we have to meet patients where they are and provide them what they need when they need it. So the difference between treating all patients the same versus providing patients what they need when they need it, that's the difference between equity and equality.
1: Welcome to the Health Equity Podcast Channel. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, a registered nurse and producer with Mission-Based Media. In the Health Equity Podcast Channel, we bring you conversations by the podcasters and leaders who are working to elevate the voices of those speaking out about equity in healthcare. This special episode is a coffee talk. Coffee talks are opportunities to bring you conversations with the people that make all this work possible. We love sharing insights and information, free to you, the listener and we rely on the support of our sponsors and partners to help ensure that we have the resources to keep serving you. This episode is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellows Program. You've probably already heard about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but did you know that they are the largest philanthropy in the United States dedicated solely to health? They do some amazing work to help build a culture of health. Learn more by using the link in the show notes. In this episode, we're focusing in on health policy and what it takes to make a difference from the capital to communities. Each fall, the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellows Program seeks out health professionals who are interested in leveraging their health expertise to gain experience in policymaking at the federal level. To learn more about affecting change through policy, I'm joined by Reggie Tucker Seely, who is one of the graduates from this program. In our conversation, Reggie and I talk about the current state of inequity within the healthcare system, and we discuss the real impact the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellows Program has on shaping a more equitable future through federal policy. Helping to improve our healthcare system's inequities and ensure everybody has a fair opportunity for health and well being is incredibly important work. I hope you come away as inspired as I was from this conversation to be a part of that change. Hi, Reggie. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm really excited to speak with you. So we're here to talk about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellows Program. But first, I'd love to start by hearing a bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background and your current role?
0: Sure. So I trained as an undergrad in accounting spent about five years in that field, realized actually very early that that wasn't for me. And so decided to get a master's in counseling and family therapy, thinking I was going to do a PhD in clinical psych. That too was not for me. But when I found the field of public health specifically, I still remember the article that I read where I saw the phrase social determinants of health. And when I saw that phrase, it was like, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of work I want to move forward. And so then I got a master's and a doctorate in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. So after my degree, I went the traditional academic route. I actually joined the faculty at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I was on faculty there. And then I was recruited by University of Southern California to the Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, where I was the Edward L. Schneider chair in gerontology and assistant professor. And then between those two roles was the time when I did the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship during the 2017-2018 academic year. Currently, I am the vice president of health equity at Zero, the end of Prostate Cancer, which is a prostate cancer education support and advocacy organization. I'm helping the organization to develop and implement its health equity strategy.
1: That's great. You have quite the resume there. I want to go back to that time in between the two roles that you mentioned, which is when you found the program and participated in the program. So can you walk us through what made you decide to apply to the program in the first place and what was happening in your career that led you to that decision?
0: At the time, I was on the faculty at the Harvard THG and School of Public Health, and I had developed a course called Measuring and Reporting Health Disparities. In that course, I developed a three-part case study that took students through the process of having to write a state-level health disparities report. It was a very popular course. The students really enjoyed it, really high evaluations. But of course, when you get great evaluations, you always focus on the few that are not so great. And so I got a couple that said, the course is really good, but there's nothing on the federal health disparities policymaking process. And so I realized that was because I knew nothing about the federal health disparities policymaking process. And all of my experience had been at the state level, which was why I focused the course on state-level um, health disparities policy. And so then I just started looking for the ways in which I could get that kind of experience. What were some opportunities to give me some insight into health disparities policy at the federal level? I knew the way in which I learned things. And the way in which I learn is by, I need that instruction and I need time to just watch. And then I can dive in. And so with the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship Program, there was a three-month orientation on how federal health policy gets made. And I knew that was exactly what I was looking for. But then I heard that the program was really competitive and it's a very prestigious program. It's the oldest health policy program in Washington, D.C. So I decided to apply and thought I was going to have to apply a bunch of times. And I was really fortunate to get selected during the first application round.
1: Amazing. Congratulations for that. So, before we get into the program, to talk a little bit about the problems that the program is trying to solve. So, it's clear to most of us that our healthcare system is falling short in terms of the delivery of care to disenfranchised individuals, people of color, and women. So, what are the top ways that people are affected when our healthcare system falls short?
0: It's actually one of the reasons why I decided to leave academia and to join an organization like Zero, the end of prostate cancer. And prostate cancer provides a great example of our healthcare delivery system falling short. So African-American men are over one and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and over two times as likely to die from the disease. And many of these differences are because of access issues and quality issues, and racism in the healthcare delivery system that African-American men encounter, which makes us not necessarily want to engage with the healthcare delivery system. And so when our healthcare delivery system falls short, we see the the differences that we see in prostate cancer, but also during the past couple of years with the COVID-19 pandemic, when all of the differences that we saw across race and socioeconomic status and place and and COVID-19 related outcomes, many folks were surprised by those differences. And I think for many of us in this field, we were not surprised because we see these differences across a range of chronic conditions. And so I think when we encounter either a new disease or sort of looking at all of the chronic diseases that are around now, we cannot be surprised that our history of racism in this country, the history of segregation, the history of the disenfranchisement, the marginalization of racial and ethnic minorities, We see that across all of our systems. We see it in education, we see it in housing. So there's no surprise that it's also present in our healthcare delivery system. And so I think it's important that we, one, understand that history, and two, that we recognize that history is going to influence all of our systems. And so we cannot be surprised when we see these racial and ethnic and socioeconomic differences in our healthcare delivery system. And I think one of the things that A program like the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship does is that it helps you to better understand the road to solutions and what that process is like. I think for many of us in academia, we assume that our research idea or whatever our research program is focused on, that's the most important thing. But it's just one part of the path to trying to figure out solutions to improving the health and healthcare of folks in this country.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that path. And there's obviously going to be quite a few different ways that this needs to be tackled with it being such a systemic issue. But first, looking at what role does policy play in creating these inequalities in the first place?
0: I think that's a really great question, because I think oftentimes we assume that if we have a really great policy that's focused on the general population, I'm reminded of that saying a rising tide lifts all boats and that's often something that's said in a policy context. But I've often thought about whether or not all boats are ready to be lifted. And so are all boats equipped for that rising tide that's coming? And so I think some of us are on much more or much better equipped boats to sort of weather a storm or to handle a rising tide or sort of whatever is happening. And other boats need a lot more help to get ready for anything that's about to change. And I think um, sort of having that general population focus without recognizing the history of the disenfranchisement, focusing on the people who are at highest risk, sort of just perpetuates the disparities that we continue to see. I wrote a paper once that I think really illustrates this example. I used to live in Rhode Island when I was on the East Coast, and CVS Health, when they stopped selling tobacco products, that is a great policy. That's a great general population policy. However, pharmacies are not randomly distributed. They're not in all neighborhoods. And so what we saw was that although that was a great policy in Rhode Island, it didn't impact the disproportionate access to tobacco products in racial and ethnic neighborhoods and in poor neighborhoods. So while a great overall policy, it didn't necessarily tackle the disparity in tobacco access. And so we can translate that to how federal policy works. If we don't focus on those at highest risk, if we don't focus on those that have been disenfranchised and just implement these general population policies, we may be exacerbating the disparities or not really impacting them at all.
1: So how do we go about doing that? What is required to kind of change those policies and find a different pathway forward?
0: Well, one of the things that I wanted to go to DC to do was to learn how federal health disparities policy gets made. And I'll say that during my 2017 and 2018 year that I was there, one thing that was surprising was just the deafening silence around health disparities. And so an explicit focus on Populations or population groups that have historically been disenfranchised or marginalized or discriminated against is very important. So, you know, and always asking the question when new policy is implemented is what are the implications to those groups? So, if you're developing a new policy or planning to implement a new policy, thinking about what groups will this policy potentially impact and specifically focusing on historically marginalized or discriminated against communities and populations.
1: Excellent. So what about the types of leaders that are in there making the decisions and making the policies?
0: So I've often described Capitol Hill as the widest place I've ever worked. And I think it's important to think about who's at the table. There's a saying in Washington, D.C. that if you aren't at the table, then you're on the menu it's important that the folks that are around the table making the decisions are representative or reflective of the diversity that we see in this country. But it's not just the people that are around the table, it's also their staff, and the staff are the gatekeepers to the policymakers, and even the interns. So for many of the internships in Washington, D.C., they are unpaid. I think maybe a couple of years ago, the White House instituted paid internships and that was a new thing. So Washington, D.C. is a very expensive place to live. You have to be able to afford an unpaid internship to get the kind of experience that one wants if one is interested in being an intern on Capitol Hill. So thinking about from the intern to the policymaker, does that population reflect the diversity of the country? And I would say, from based on what I saw, it did not. And so it's important that we have people with the lived experiences of the policies that we need in order to address the historical marginalization and discrimination that has occurred in this country.
1: Absolutely. All right. So we've talked about some of the current problems with the healthcare system and also with the policies and how the policy plays a role. So let's talk a little bit about the program now and what it's doing about these issues. So how does the program help to prepare people to create that change that you've been talking about?
0: Yeah. So one of the things that attracted me to the program I mentioned was the three-month orientation. Oh my gosh, you meet so many people in Washington, D.C. engaged in the federal policymaking process. And I often say I thought I knew at least a little bit about the federal health policy system when I was selected for the program. But as I was going through the orientation, I realized what I knew was such a small part And the size and scope of federal health policymaking was so much bigger than I even imagined. And so I feel like the program gives you the breadth and depth of federal health policymaking through that orientation and through the opportunities of deciding where do you want your placement. So you get to explore all of these offices in the executive branch and in Congress and just trying to think about where you want to land So just learning about all of these aspects of federal health policy and then thinking about how it is what you do fits within this very large system, I think is one of the key elements of the program is that it forces you to situate what you do into this really large system that is, again, even larger than I imagine it to be. And then it gives you an opportunity to be in it. But I have to say to those of us who are in academia, we are so used to dictating the research question that gets asked than dictating the, the work that gets done. And so in these instances, you are not in charge. It can be a bit challenging for some academics, but we get to watch and we get to be a part of it and part of this process that most people don't get to see. So, for example, my placement was in the United States Senate and I worked for Senator Dianne Feinstein with her health policy team. And I just got to watch how... A senior senator from a large state implements policy. And so that experience is unmatched. And so you get to take that back to whatever it is you were doing before the fellowship. But it is an amazing immersion into this really large system that most of us know so little about, but that implements our lives on such a critical level.
1: Yes, but it is so important. So you can take that back to whatever you were doing before which leads me to something else I want to make sure that we find out about, which is who is this program for? What types of professionals might consider applying to this program?
0: Well, it's described as a mid-career program. So for mid-career folks with an interest in health policy. But I think it's a really great opportunity for academics or those who are interested in influencing health policy at state and federal levels I think it's a great opportunity for individuals who have a background in health, healthcare, public health, social service, really thinking through any field that is touched by health and health care.
1: Wonderful. So quite a wide net there for anyone listening. So how do people go about getting involved? What's the application process like?
0: Surprisingly, the application was relatively short you have to fill out an application. You have to answer some key questions about our health and healthcare, but the answers or the responses were really brief. So it isn't like a really long, like NIH application or anything like that. So you fill out the application and then they select finalists. And then you have an interview with, I think, board members of the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship Program. And then from that, They actually select the very next day who gets selected for the fellowship program. That part of the process happened really quickly. So you fill out the application, you're selected as a finalist, and then there are interviews that happen on one day, and then you find out the next day if you've been selected.
1: Each fall, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellows Program seeks out health professionals who are interested in leveraging their health expertise to gain experience in policymaking at the federal level. We're recording this episode in September, 2022. Applications are open now, but don't worry if you found this episode too late to apply in 2022. I have good news. There is a new program every year. So go to healthpolicyfellows.org and sign up to hear more about the next application period. This year in 2022, applications are open until November 7th, but You'll need a few weeks to get all your information together, so don't delay. This is an important application and not something you can just complete and submit in an afternoon. So give yourself some time to get all the information and references you need so your application has the best chance of being successful. Again, you can go to healthpolicyfellows.org. There's a link in the show notes. You're listening to a Coffee Talk about the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellows Program. So far, we've been talking about the current inequities that exist within the healthcare system and how this program is helping to address them. Next, I speak with Reggie about the supportive relationships that often form with the people taking part in the program.
0: I think any experience that you have with six or seven other people is going to bring that group closer together. So we spent three months together, eight hours a day, five days a week, So yes, it definitely created a bond. And for many of them, I'm still in contact with them to this day. And we text and keep up with each other professionally and provide each other with career advice. And one of the things that I'll never forget, a former fellow said to me that her dean said to her when she went back that it feels like you're too big for us and we need to figure out what to do with all of this knowledge that you're bringing back to us. And my cohort we talked a lot right after the fellowship about, do I still fit where I've gone back to? How do I take all of this information and apply it? I might want to do something different. And you look around and no one understands that experience, but the five or six other people who went through it with you. And so, yes, I think it creates a closeness among a group of people who've had a very similar, very positive experience, and it sort of helps you develop these lifelong friendships around career and we know what each other's families are doing. So yes, it does create a closeness among the cohort.
1: That's so important. That's lovely. So on that note, just being an alumni in general, so you have these friends for life, these coworkers for life, these people that understand what you've been through that you can stay connected with. Is there anything else about being an alumni that stands out to you and What's your level of involvement after finishing it?
0: Well, there's a great alumni directory. The program maintains the list of all former fellows. And so you can search for people who are in your same area, especially right after you come back, because you really miss it. Some people choose to stay because they've found the place where they want to work. And so with the alumni directory, you are now linked forever to the largest or the oldest federal health policy program in the country. And so you can reach out to former alums, you can talk to them about your experience. But I think that's one of the best parts of the program is you're forever an alumni of the program and you now have a connection to everyone else who's participated in the program.
1: That's so great. Just a little built-in community and network. That's fantastic. So you mentioned in the beginning about your career path of going from academia to nonprofit. Is there anything else that you can talk to about the kind of non-traditional career paths that people might take and the types of skills that they might develop from this program that can help them on more non-traditional paths?
0: Yeah. So I think the fellowship program has historically attracted physicians, attorneys, or people from public health. One thing that I mentioned at the beginning is that the health policy sort of realm is so much bigger than that. And so I think the fellowship program welcomes folks from a variety of health and health-related social service-related fields, because all of these fields come together to create our federal health policy-making machine. And so For people to learn how their respective field fits within that larger machine, I think this program would be really helpful because then you take those skills back to your respective field to begin to make some change and to influence the federal health policy making machine. I think for many of us, we also don't know how to influence it. And so if we can sort of learn those skills, take them back and then come back to the arena to make some change.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you're just understanding how this massive machine, as you've said, how it works. And anyone that does anything within the health industry at all is going to have some kind of part to play within that machine.
0: I think also it helps you to see sort of what fields are predominant in the health policy space. So I would say physicians and lawyers and economists. Those are the three main fields. So we need so many other fields to be at the table to influence this process so that their respective space or their respective sort of fields in the healthcare delivery federal health policy making machine are represented.
1: Absolutely. You've mentioned a bit about what your experience was like, what you've taken away from it, but I want to find out a bit more from you on that front about what this program did for you personally and professionally.
0: Personally, I think it gave me courage to try new things. So I think for many of us on the academic track, there is the traditional path of you get your doctorate, you do the postdoc, you're an assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, and you might have a couple of fellowship detours here or there. But what this program did for me was that it gave me an opportunity to see a different path for those of us who get trained at the graduate level in public health. I think it also gave me a new appreciation for research. Naively, I think I thought, or I did think, that maybe policymakers just don't have enough of the right research, and enough of us aren't talking to them about the research needs, or enough of us aren't talking to them about our research findings. I learned that Congress has its own research arm called the Congressional Research Service, and so they can access research anytime they want that point really changed how I viewed my role in creating research and sort of disseminating research. And I realized I wanted to be a part of a process that was a little faster than the research process. So this fellowship program gave me an opportunity, one, to see that there are many things that influence the policy process, not just research. So I could potentially be engaged in many things if I wanted to see change in the communities that were of interest to me. So if I wanted to make changes to the health disparities that were important to me, research was one way, but there are many other ways to influence policy. And so this program gave me insight into that. Also, it gave me courage to try new things. So as a part of this fellowship program, you live in Washington, D.C. for a year, you completely immerse yourself in the Washington, D.C. policy world. I would say that I probably wouldn't have had the courage to do the role that I have now if I hadn't done that fellowship program because it really gave me the courage to try something new and to realize that I could utilize my skills and that I gained from my doctoral training in public health in a wide variety of different positions.
1: Very inspiring. So I imagine there's going to be some people listening, you know, we're inspired, we want to do something. What do you think people who are listening can do to help bring about real and lasting change?
0: I think for people who are interested in this fellowship program, that's the first step, but there are many other fellowship programs. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I explored not only the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship Program, but other fellowship programs while I think our program is the best program. It was the best program for me, but also just being engaged, being engaged in the political process and sort of understanding at all levels, at your local level, at your state level, and at your federal level, that people are making decisions about your entire life, basically from education to housing to health and healthcare. And so being engaged in those decision-making processes as much as you can. I recognize that we all have lives. Some of us have families and other responsibilities that that process is hard. So identifying where you can get involved and being as involved as you can in the decisions in your community that are impacting you and your family.
1: That's great. Well, I think that just about covers it. Was there anything else that you wanted to add about the program or about using policy to address health inequities more generally or anything else you want to get across today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the importance of going through this experience, if you're selected to be a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow, is that it really forces you to situate what you do in the larger federal health policy system. And so there's very few experiences that force you to do that introspection around what it is that you do. And so if you have the opportunity to be a part of this program and have that experience of trying to figure out how what you do fits into the larger federal health policymaking process, it then forces you to figure out how do I get policymakers' attention around this particular issue and how do I move issues in that particular topic forward. Nothing else prepares you for that process other than, I think, a fellowship program like the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship Program.
1: Very well said. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today, Reggie.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I love talking about this fellowship program, so any opportunity to do it, i jump on it.
1: Well, you've got some really important things to say. It's been a pleasure. I feel inspired and I'm sure that our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Head to healthpolicyfellows.org to learn more and start your application or share it with someone who you think could benefit from participating. Don't forget, applications close November 7th in 2022. But you'll want to make sure that you give yourself enough time to get it completed before then. And in case you want to keep up with Reggie and his work.
0: You can find about our work at zerocancer.org and feel free to find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. My Twitter handle is at regtuckz and I'm always there tweeting about health equity and about all of the great work that we're doing at Zero Cancer.
1: I'm Anna Steckline. You've been listening to a Coffee Talk put on by the Health Equity Podcast channel, made possible with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellows Program. Thanks so much for being here.